I am Giovanni Moro, I'm from Cavenna. I live in Milano since the university year. And uh, me and my business partner Simone, we run the Wimantic company. Well, thanks for your time, uh, for being on the podcast. Uh, well, it's, it's actually been a long time. I wanted to have uh, some kind of horology episode because uh, there's always so many people interested in it. And uh, I love your watches, of course. Thank um, you, thank you. I wear it often. <laughs> it's one of my Not favorite today. ones. Not today. Not today, because I thought it would be a bit pretentious <laughs> to come with the, with the same watch. So, so yeah, I actually changed it up. But, uh, the first question I always ask everybody, and since we already grabbed a cup of coffee, is how do you drink your coffee? My coffee, uh, well, like a regular uh, espresso with no sugar and usually uh, sparkling wine, sparkling water on the side. No, regular espresso with sparkling water on the side, like classic. It's just, I ask because in, in other countries, regular coffee is not an espresso, right? But here, yes, when but you say just a coffee, it's actually an espresso. Yes, yeah. thanks God we are in Italy. At least for coffee, we're lucky. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so you moved to Milan to study design? Yes, I was in Politecnico di Milano, where I studied uh, industrial design. And uh, in the university here, I met what uh, is today my business partner and then uh, <clears throat> I went through some let's say uh, classical path of designer uh, coming from the Polytechnico so I started with a stage in a factory we were doing a, a door handle and furniture and uh, this was a very good uh, training for my future professional life and uh, in there I met uh, a designer that uh, shortly after uh, opened his own studio and so I moved to that studio and I worked there for uh, I don't know three four years something like that so basically doing freelance and uh, after doing that some point uh, I get back in touch with my university colleague Simone and uh, we always had this idea on uh, how a watch should look and how it should be designed and stuff like that and so the time was right uh, because in the meantime uh, I found a supplier that was able to provide us with the, the small quantity of watches that we needed and at the same time was able to deliver the let's say, quality level and detail level we were after. And so we tried. Uh, we did the Modello 1A. They were just uh, 300 pieces. We started everything exactly as a game. And then we were very lucky because the watch was, uh, I mean, appreciated by a much wider audience that we could ever expect and so it started like that and then uh, keep growing uh, always talking about 
very, very small, limited number, but still it's growing and it's growing nowadays as well. So it's, uh, let's say, everything we did uh, was a joke, a game, I don't know how to say in English, but uh, that now is developing in something more uh, mm, serious or more uh, established, so to say, but we still keep this origin of doing everything basically for fun. And uh, that's why we are here today. Basically. And when did you start oh, liking watches so much? You had the idea before you made the company. So you already... Yes, 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 yes. Because uh, now I'm 36 and uh, when I was in the university, I was like 20 or something. And uh, Already in that period, uh, both me and Simone we were super passionate about watches. Uh, you know, buying, collecting, selling, trading, all the regular, you know, watch collector shit. And uh, <clears throat> because of that, and uh, I mean, the, the passion for the watch object in itself, plus being trained as an industrial designer, you put those together and uh, I mean, it's natural to have an idea on how the watch should be designed. If it, if, if it was me designing this particular watch from this particular brand, I would have done it like that or like that. So the, the binding uh, it's from our, uh, let's say, study background uh, plus the passion and the passion uh, I don't know where to date it back but it's I mean together with my life uh, I'm not sure exactly where it was born but maybe it's because my father loved watches so I remember his watches and then I grow up with this I guess is there a watch that uh, your father had that you remember a lot yes but I don't like it <laughs> If it's okay, I can, <laughs> I can talk about this. And uh, actually, he didn't like it as well. I don't know exactly why he bought it, but uh, I do remember that he bought it and then uh, he was like trying to sell it, but nobody wanted to buy it back. And uh, this was a EWC uh, Leonardo da Vinci uh, Perpetual Calendar that it's very demo day nowadays because it's a fairly big watch with this uh, perpetual calendar complication so it's i mean it's a weird watch i don't know how to say and uh, this is the one that for some reason i do remember more clearly but uh, it's very far from what i have what i what i should have bought if i were him and then on the side of this, uh, he had uh, not so many, to be honest, and maybe not so, you know, big watches. In that period, I remember uh, the first uh, the first batch of Hublot. So I'm talking about the, what is now the Big Bang, I guess. I don't know, but like the original Hublot, like steel and gold with the caoutchouc band. This one I remember clearly. And then, uh, to be honest, I don't know, because 
Uh, my father died when I was uh, quite a young kid, and then basically his watch went, you know, to my brother and to my sister and, and so on. So I only keep one watch from his collection that is like a chronograph from the 1940. It's like no brand. It's, I don't know, Jolus or something like that. It's a Venus uh, 3313 movement and uh, has no monetary value, but uh, you know, to me it's important because maybe it's from my grandfather or something. So let's say it passed through the generation till, till today but uh, nothing uh, particularly fancy in his collection, beside the ugly EWC. <laughs> and what is uh, perhaps one watch that you have bought yourself that then actually didn't like anymore? Me? Yeah. No, I'm very good in picking watches, so <laughs> I didn't bought anything ugly. Uh, I'm trying to think, because before starting Unimatic, as I told you, uh, we had a little bit of a problem of uh, acquisto compulsivo. I don't know how to say in English, you translate for me. Well, sometimes we call it gas, which is uh, gear acquisition syndrome. So yeah. it's just you're buying because you want something new all Perfect. the time. Perfect. Impulsive. Uh, I have a big issue with gas, as uh, Roberto suggested. And uh, now this involves uh, other items. But back in the day, this was a lot focused on watches. So thinking of the most ugly, I'm afraid I cannot tell, but uh, because it looks like uh, talking bad about a brand, but uh, I can tell you it's from a Japanese brand, but not a big one. And it's truly ugly. And uh, I, I don't repent buying it because it's weird, but uh, well, this one is maybe the only one I'm not proud <laughs> of owning. It's a Kentex, I can say, because nobody knows this company. So it's a Kentex with the mother of pearl deal. Mm. It's really bad. Uh, but uh, other than this, I mean, I don't have a very big collection also because after starting Unimatic, I did stop buying stuff watch-wise. And uh, so I have a good number of watches and all of them I like it. And uh, it's very difficult for me to part for them, even if I should, because uh, as you can imagine, I always wear Unimatic. But still, I have them in the safe. Even if I don't put them, <laughs> I have them. And uh, uh, I don't know. the the. The first one I ever bought, I remember this clearly, uh, after I started my job in, in the furniture company, it was a, an Omega Speedmaster. And uh, this is, I guess, the, I mean, the most important watch I own. Not because of the price tag, but because of the, you know, symbolical meaning I gave to it. And, uh, I don't know what to say. Uh, no, I think uh, we will have one of those ones. Uh, for me, it's actually a, a way, way worse watch than yours. I, I got this uh, one uh, Armani watch from my grandfather when I was 13. 
Okay. So I guess for a 13 year old, it's okay. Yeah. Uh, I could bang it around and it was fine. I, I didn't care much at the time, but now it's uh, very special for me. So yeah. I, I would never get rid of it just because of where it came from. And uh, uh, if you have it from your father, you can also have like, I don't know, the worst is going to be the best. Yeah. <laughs> and how was it back then, for example, let's say, back then before there was all these blogs and the internet basically people were looking for watches but there was not a community in the way that there is one now yeah so you had to kind of find your information from people or seeing what other people were wearing or maybe more traditional advertising yeah i guess that uh, i'm not exactly sure of what i'm saying but uh... I think that when I was in the university, we already had some, uh, you know, forum mm -hmm. and stuff like that going on. Especially in Italy, we have a, like a quite a big one. And uh, I guess that this was, or maybe is, I don't know, because I don't follow it anymore, but uh, this was acting uh, as the, let's say, opinion leader back in the day. And uh, so I guess that uh, part of my time was spent in browsing these, you know, infinite topics about uh, new Rolexes and stuff like that. And then, uh, I mean, beside this, uh, you know, I always try to buy what I like and uh, obviously I'm, you know, influenced by by the environment I'm in. But uh, I always try to do my choice and uh, not follow, follow the lead of somebody else. And uh, now things have changed, as you highlighted, uh, with these big forums, big, uh, big websites. Things are changing fast. But it's not only in watchmaking, I guess. I think it's something that you can extend to any possible industrial product in the world. But, uh, <clears throat> I mean, as a Unimatic co-founder, I can only be happy that there is this kind of uh, uh, easiness of access to information because uh, to do something like we are doing today, I guess, could have been impossible if we started this 30 years ago. Then, at the same time, this leads to a crazy competition because, as you know, there are so many new brands popping out day after day. Uh, but this is the other side of the of the medal i don't know if this is okay in english but we say it in italy um, so we have to take the full package but the full package was very helpful for us and uh, i think overall it's great to be able to you know browse uh, the new watches uh, regardless if you are from Milano, or from the small town I'm from, or from Mexico, or whatever. So, I do like the globalization of information, 
and uh, unimatic wise we are thankful to the many that helped us along the way uh, so I don't know if this answered the question yeah yeah and uh, I would say that one thing that I did notice as someone who also follows this and looks at like you say all these brands that pop up every other mm -hmm. week and uh, I mean there's always a lot of them that are in a way imitating yep. for example there's even brands that are micro brands that uh, let's say specialize in doing I don't know let's say a Panerai homage mm -hmm. or things like this that people can afford in a way yeah and one thing I do appreciate uh, of Unimatic is that the design is maybe it's inspired by something and I would like to ask you where does it come from but it's also very original it doesn't feel like a, like an homage it doesn't feel like a like a replica of course it, it just feels like what it is and I think maybe that's why you guys had so much success at the beginning with uh, I mean I remember uh, first uh, seeing your your first run of watches in, in even in Holinki in design boom in places mm -hmm. where uh, Design is appreciated in the end. Yeah, uh, uh, thank you. And uh, I mean, you hit a spot we are very proud of uh, because uh, I mean, you can like our products or not, but uh, if you are, let's say, if your eyes are trained enough, you can see that uh, our design language is different from a lot of other micro brands, as you said, and we are very happy about this and uh, we would like to keep this forever, even if this is not the best option business-wise. Uh, but still, as I told you before, uh, we start everything because we wanted to do something we would be wearing and we would be proud of uh, you know, have done and still nowadays like that. So uh, the design choice we we did and we do also day by day when we are getting ready the new collection stuff are oriented in doing this, keeping our own vision of the product and uh, possibly in a developing it in a lineup that could be meaningful because we started with the Modelo 1, then we had the Modelo 2, and then we had the Modelo 3. These are very different uh, kind of products, uh, maybe also targeting very different uh, kind of uh, collectors or customer, whatever. But we hope that uh, Watching our lineup, you can feel uh, the same, uh, mm, let's say, design method we applied from the beginning till today, and we hope for the next 100 years. And uh, <clears throat> coming to the, the question uh, of uh, where the design comes from, if we are talking about the Modelo Uno, that is, I mean, I think by far the most successful uh, design we, we had and the one that started everything. Uh, it's uh, obviously a bl blend 
of several design inspiration. And uh, this is uh, very unavoidable. I don't know if this is English or not, but I mean, you cannot avoid doing inspiration <laughs> design a lot. Uh, because uh, you're talking about a diving watch, uh, you're talking about a product that it's very established and uh, complete. I'm sorry, but it's hard to explain in English this concept. It's not so natural for me to flow in English, but uh, the basic idea is that uh, if you want to do a tool watch that is designed for diving, you have a number of constraints that take you to some design choice and uh, you have very little elements to play around unless you want to do basically decoration and we don't want to do decoration we want uh, we wanted to have a tool that go on your wrist when you go diving that it looks nice this was like the brief we gave to ourselves and so we blended some elements from the past and uh, If you want to hear some names, I can say that uh, we took the, the dial graphics from Blanc Pen Diver and then we took a little bit of the side view of uh, Omega Seamaster 300 and then uh, the rotating bezel. If you want to be cool, you say we took it from Blanc Pen. Otherwise, you can say we took it from Rolex. I don't care. And then we try to mix up everything to have something that we like. And we try to clean up everything was possible to be cleaned up. And so we had the model room. This is uh, shortly what we did. And uh, There is, uh, I think, very little you can do if you want to be, if you want to have a new diving watch, uh, there is nothing to invent. There is nothing you can take from the sky and put it in your watch to make it better. If you want to make it decorative or worse than prior exemplar, you can do it. Otherwise, you cannot. It's like uh, if you are asked to design uh, a hammer, there is nothing you can do design-wise on a hammer. You can change the color of the handle a little bit, maybe the, the shape of the hammer head, but the hammer must work like that. You should have the big weight on top and the long handle long enough to be, I mean, purposeful and at the same time you can end it and that's it you can also I mean just play around with the color that's it so the diving watch in a way is like that it's very very accomplished item or like an umbrella or I mean there is a lot of an example but uh, have very little room for uh, design fanciness and uh, 
a little bit the same can apply to the following Modello 2 that uh, it's a field watch. We added a 300 meter uh, water resistance that make it like one of the few field watch that has this kind of uh, rating. And so this dictates some design uh, feature that are uh, maybe not so easy to understand from outside. That's why it's so thick, for example. And then the Modello 3, that is a chronograph, but 300 meter uh, water resistant again. So also in this case, uh, <coughs> a lot of the design work uh, was uh, uh, constrained by this, uh, this requirement. And so that's it. No, I think I, I do see it. And maybe now that you put it into words, talking to you that you designed it, uh, I mean, the 50 Fathoms is one of my favorite watches ever, so... Good choice. Uh, when I see your watches, or when I saw watches the first time, I would say, what I thought about was, this is uh, like a vintage style aesthetic, but very contemporary. And I would uh, argue that it's maybe the choice of, not of what to include, but what to exclude the, the mm -hmm. simplicity that you guys managed to achieve into making it look like a tool watch. It is not trying to be fancy, it's not uh, like other companies that are doing a thousand meters that no one needs or yep. things like that. I would compare it a bit to like, we all want a 69 Mustang, but maybe it would be nicer if it had a, a, a new engine in it and it wouldn't give yeah. you troubles <laughs> every other day, right? So for me, this is Unimatic. It's like, it's like an old watch, but new, in a way. And um, this is a big appreciation to our work, so thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I also studied uh, graphic design and architecture, and uh, I'm attracted to, to, this, to this kind of element, so I'm always you know, keeping my... I also get inspired by, by all these things, so... But uh, this one was a, one that I couldn't figure out exactly, yeah, maybe... I guess as a designer, we're all like cooks. You mix elements from from different inspirations, and this one was a bit hard to to pinpoint uh, where where every ingredient came from. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it's hard also for me to understand exactly where this came and whatnot, uh, because uh, I think it's uh, a much more natural process than what I described, because it's not that we, okay, let's take the blank pen and scan, uh, 3D scan the dial and do it similar but different. No, uh, I think it's just in the building up of our uh, own uh, collection, not meaning that I have a blank pen, but uh, I saw a lot of pictures of 50 Fathoms and uh, I was drooling about them. And so in a way we, tried to understand what we like from this watch or that watch and that watch and that watch and then we try to synthesize everything inside uh, our own version of it so it's more like a let's say putting a lot of inputs all together and then uh, try to distill something that it's good <laughs> <laughs>
and uh, but it was like a very natural uh, procedure. It's nothing scientific. And uh, also keep in mind that uh, when we started this, we started again as a game. So it was just why I don't like this watch uh, because it has this particular element. Okay, let's take it out. Uh, why I like instead this one because it has this thing. Okay, let's keep it. So it's like building up, uh, I don't know, mm, custom bike, but starting from scratch and not starting from the actual bike. So, a bit of a game like this. And uh, how did it come to be this? I see that you guys share some pictures sometimes with this guy who does uh, diving photography. Yeah. Underwater photography. Alexander Dozon. Ah, sorry, what's the name again? Alexander Dozon. And it's nice to see that you guys actually prove that this this is a diving watch. It's it's getting used. It's not like a yeah. desk diver. Yeah. Uh, well, we have uh, a number of customers or collectors uh, that uh, use the watch in its natural environment. That should be deep water or water. And uh, among those, uh, one day we get in touch with this Alexander Dozen that happens to be a super talented under, underwater photographer. And so we basically set up some kind of uh, collaboration. I don't know how to describe it, but uh, in a nutshell, uh, he wear the watch when he go under the sea to shoot something for uh, their his own customer that are mainly I guess magazine or other brand sponsoring something and uh, so let's say we get the outtake and uh, he get the watch on his wrist and uh, we are very happy of the results we're getting because as you said <coughs> we can show the watch uh, in its natural ambience and uh, also I think the Many of these pictures are very visually pleasing, so it's a perfect match, and we wish we can continue doing it, and uh, hopefully also get some other angle because uh, <coughs> Alex, it's a you know very technical kind of diver, so maybe you can see it, or maybe it's just because I'm biased of knowing it, but uh, you can see this angle also in the picture in a way but uh, you know the sea is such a huge team to be developed and uh, we are trying to do it also you know photography and product wise because uh, as I mentioned before all of our watches are 300 meter water resistant uh, because we do like the sea and we do like to wear the watch when we are uh, in the water or on the beach or on the boat or whatever it is. And so, in a way, we have uh, some kind of connection with the sea. Maybe also because we are Italian and we are surrounded 360 almost <laughs> by the sea. And so, we like it and uh, we are working to be uh, even more marine company, <laughs> so to say. Yeah, that's that's what I wanted to ask you because I mean let's say yeah we all enjoy going in the water sometimes yep. but we are not professional divers most most of the people are not yeah 
and uh, so now you have someone who is and who likes your watches from the beginning, I guess. Do you get some input back from him that maybe will inspire new designs in the future, like things that he would say we, to you? Yeah. This little thing here, maybe. Yeah. We had some feedback. We had some comments uh, from Alex and also from other guys that use the watch uh, when diving. Uh, basically, on the straps, strap part. That it's funny because uh, I mean we try to put ourselves in the in the shoes of all of our customers, but uh, uh, the diving one they don't love the the new nylon NATO because uh, doesn't dry up fast enough and. Uh, not because of that, but just because we were lucky, we have the floral astomer NATO, that it's basically a cool kind of rubber. And this one doesn't get wet, so dry up very fast. But uh, this was an input uh, about the nylon one that we are trying to evolve uh, into some better option for uh, who prefer a textile strap. And then uh, about the product, I mean the watch head in itself, uh, uh, we didn't have complaint uh, up to today. And uh, even if we know what uh, would be required, and I'm talking about basically better loom performance. And this is something that we hopefully can do in the future. And what about the other collaborations that uh, you have with uh, yep. designers from Japan, from England? How does this uh, come into, into the ground? Uh, well, <clears throat> let's say that uh, we started doing the, the collapse, I think, in the best possible way ever. And uh, if we are here today, maybe it's also because of that, because uh, when we launched the Modelo 1A, uh, our first retailer ever was Colette in Paris, that, as you know, and possibly also your audience will know, used to be, you know, the best shop in the world, period. And uh, we started selling there <coughs> on our scale. The product was hugely successful. And so the guy that was in charge of the watch department, and uh, I want to thank him. Thank you, Seb. Uh, at some point, come up with the idea of doing a Colette-only watch. And so we developed the uh, Modelo 1C, Chi, like Colette. And uh, this is like, uh, this was like the, you know, entering door of the world of collaboration. And uh, uh, obviously the watch was successful, maybe just because it was uh, co-branded with Colette, or maybe because it was cool, because it was. So we started with the Colette collab, uh, U1C, in 2016, and this was uh, hugely successful. And then uh, we attracted some other interest from our store in Hong Kong, wow. And then Luisa Viaroma in Florence. Uh, I don't want to miss out some other shops, but uh, we loved all of them. 
Then was time for the new in Paris, goods in Copenhagen, uh, MrPorter.com. And then coming to this year, we had uh, a collab I'm particularly proud of with Mihara Yasuiro, that is a Japanese designer and fashion brand. And uh, we have, you know, something else coming in the, the pipeline. And uh, I'm not sure on when this podcast is going to be released. So I'm not sure I can talk about those already. <laughs> okay. But you also did a collaboration with, uh, with this Japanese brand. I yeah, Biotop. Biotop. Yeah, yeah. We did two, actually. One in the very beginning and uh, one of the latest for the U1 Biotop uh, that it's sold exclusively in Japan through their uh, three store they have in Osaka, Tokyo and Fukuoka. And uh, yeah, mm, I'm sure we are forgetting something else, but uh, all of them are in my heart. But that one was probably, like I told you before we started, probably one of my favorite looking ones. And uh, it's also that thing that, you know, you cannot get it. Yeah, unless, yeah, unless I would grab a plane and go all the way to Japan. Uh, yeah, this is, uh, I think it's a selling point <laughs> because uh, we are lucky enough to have people that are, you know, very committed to the unimatic, like if it were a cult or, or something. And uh, not being able to, to get it, uh, I'm sure it starts some kind of cravings. And these apply to the biotop just because of geographical reasons and in a way also apply to the U1 space program, the one with the NASA logo on the dial, just because we did too few of those, but uh, there are only, I guess, 50 people in the world that own those and uh, many, many, many other that are uh, trying to get it uh, on the secondary market or uh, emailing us uh, in the hope somebody will send it back or something. So it's a little bit of a cruel system uh, that we didn't exactly choose in the beginning, but at the same time, uh, nowadays it's uh, one easy way to keep the business going because, uh, I mean, we don't have uh, any marketing budget. We don't advertise. We just, uh, we're really, really a product-driven company. And so, since we are lucky enough to have uh, a lot of people willing to buy the watch, uh, we need to keep some kind of uh, niche targeting for our products and sometimes we are uh, we put ourselves too much in a small niche like we did for the for the NASA one uh, I mean we are trying to learn the, the trade while doing it and uh, it's not easy but as you said this is a this is a part of the brand value so to say and uh, I guess it's going to to stay there for a long time. Even if uh, now maybe we are a little bit more known in comparison to the very beginning of of the Unimatic. 
and so I think we could uh, slightly extend the, the number of our productions. But it's not, I mean, happening uh, from one day to another. So it's, it's a process and uh, we hope to find the right balance between uh, being niche and uh, not to disappoint too many people when we release something. I find it a bit somehow like some fashion brands, let's say some high fashion brands that you can only get this pair of sneakers in Japan and uh, limited quantities and generating this like second market resale. People looking for it even if they cannot find it. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah, it might be hard to be in that situation because you know there's a bit of demand but also maybe the demand is in, in, in a way created by the limited uh, availability of the product itself like, yeah. like we said before it makes it more desirable uh when i see this nasa watch and i know i kind of cannot get it even if i wanted to um well you are right the main difference is that I guess that uh, Nike and Adidas and all of these brands, they know what they're doing, while we are not. And so, I mean, the Biotop not being available to European and US customer is not some kind of uh, magic marketing trick, but it's just because uh, the Japanese, they don't want to ship outside of Japan. and. Uh, also, these apply to our uh, regular production uh, edition numbers because uh, the fact is that uh, we usually, I mean, we always choose uh, upfront how many watch uh, to do of this particular reference or, or this other one. And uh, it's very, very hard, if not impossible, to you know, foresee what is going to be a hit and what is not going to be a hit. So, till today we were uh, quite lucky in having uh, a huge demand for a small quantity of watch we produce. Maybe one day we'll do the opposite mistake, but we are very prudential and so <clears throat> we tend to make uh, too few and not too many. So, in a way, we helped building up the hype, but not because of some weird marketing strategy, but because of uh, our uh, prudential approach. And, uh, and this is it. So, there is no scheme in this. And uh, sometimes it's also painful because uh, if I think to the uh, U1B, so the second iteration of the Modelo Uno, I mean, we get, now it's 2019, so it's a watch from three years ago. We did like 200 pieces. Uh, we should have done uh, maybe 2,000 or maybe even 5,000. And we would be sell out also for those. And still people is asking in email, 
uh, maybe you can find me a U1B and maybe you know somebody who is willing to sell it. Uh, no, we are not. And uh, we said we are making 200 and we did 200 and we sold 200 and that's it. And it's gone forever. So, I mean, I'm obviously very happy about this being, let's say, the father who <laughs> creates these kids. At the same time, uh, if I have to run this thing as a business, uh, I'm very sorry because I left uh, a lot of sales along the road, but this is life. But I see it also as a positive sometimes. I mean, when I think of your brand, I, I think that there's people behind the brand. I know that, and it's happened many times with me. When I post uh, an Instagram story of my Unimatic watch, uh, you repost it uh, sometimes. Yep. When uh, I mean, for sure, it happens to other people when they email you, when they I don't know tag you on Instagram or something. There's people, there's real people behind this. There's you, there's other people. I, so it's it's not like when I think of a giant watch company that uh, I know is just a corporation and. Yeah, and and it's a uh, it's a different thing. It's a different relationship between us, kind of like you say, maybe as enthusiasts and collectors more than just consumers. Yeah, sure. This is uh, this is true. I mean, we are hundred percent not a big corporation, even if I wish we were, but uh, we are just three people. I mean, it's me and uh, Simona and Beata and that's it. I mean, it's a very small operation. So everything, every input we get, if it's this uh, email or uh, Instagram tag or message or whatever, I mean, it's just three people receiving those things. So 100% we have a direct relationship and these are uh, as some bad uh, sides, so to say, because uh, I mean, we are 100%, our life is 100% committed to the, to the Unimatic, but at the same time, it's the most rewarding uh, experience we get from running the company, because uh, we had the chance of meeting so many interesting people and not only the the people who actually bought the watch, but also journalists, photographer, you, Roberto. So it's a it's a way that we somehow discover while doing it uh, to connect to some very far universes and person uh, we shouldn't even we sh we wouldn't be able to to get in touch with and uh, the Miaraya Suiro collaboration is an example why would a, a 30 years old company well established in Japan with some kind of crazy design genius behind this have a collaboration with uh, you know the one of the smallest company in the world in Milano on the other side of the, the heart. Uh, we don't know, but it happened and it happened because the guy happened to like the Modello Uno and 
Where the Modello 1 in London uh, runway show a couple of years ago, so we get in touch and he suggested we should have done something together and then we did it. So this is just an example, but uh, I mean, I have plenty of new friends and uh, people we are talking with that uh, get in touch because of the of the watches and because of the of what we were doing with the, with the Unimatic and this is uh, again as I told you I'm sorry to repeat this like one billion times in in the podcast but uh, since uh, we started everything not as a business but as a pleasure this is still the most rewarding things we we built and uh, you know I'm personally, humanly, very, very happy about this. It's the, it's the best thing. And also, if everything finished tomorrow, I will be happy. I mean, I will be sad business-wise, but uh, as a human person, I'm super happy. So, and this has something to do with being such a small company. Because, uh, I mean, if... Uh, Nick Sullivan from Esquire USA put a like on several pictures on our Instagram. Somebody will notice. Maybe it's me, maybe it's Simone, maybe it's, it's our studio assistant. But uh, somebody will notice and will be happy in that moment. And uh, if there is a chance to establish some kind of relationship, I mean, human relationship, beside the, the business, beside the, you know, article or whatnot we can have. Uh, it's going to happen because of the direct link. So this is a, a very valuable asset. It's a limit for the business, but it's a very valuable asset for uh, the human being. And it all starts because this basic design language that we share. As someone here in Milan or someone in, in Tokyo, there's even if you don't speak the common language, mm -hmm. there's design always. Yep. that attracts you to other people's creations, right? Yeah. So, talking a bit about this, uh, is there something else that you are very passionate about or interested or collecting that is in watches? Collecting? Uh, not really. Uh, I mean, I'm not a true collector kind of guy, beside watches, but... Uh, Let's say that I like so many things. I don't even <laughs> I don't even know where to start. I mean, uh, I fell in love, uh, fall in love very easily. And um, regardless, this is a, a shoe or a shelf or a watch box or a ashtray. So, as you said, maybe it's because of the common language of of design. Unfortunately, for my wallet, I can see this common language in a variety of objects. And so I'm very prone to, to gas, as you said before, for almost everything in the world. And, uh, but everything that looks nice, at least to me. And uh, so, this is not a, an answer to your question, but uh, I don't know. Ask me something uh, 
some kind of object, I can tell you if I like it or not. But uh, if you are asking me about being a collector, like you mentioned earlier, maybe sneakers or something like that, I'm not a sneaker collection, but maybe I like some particular sneakers, so I get it or I would like to get it, but not in a organic mindset of a collector, mm. just, uh, you know, randomly spot purchase or interest. And so, I don't know. I think the, more, the most money I spend on photography equipment, even if I don't make a professional use of it, uh, unfortunately, because I'd like to, but uh, this is the most uh, expensive hobby I have. And I think this applies to my business partner, Simone. Okay, so just to say two things, mm -hmm. uh, tell me one that maybe you were thinking, thinking, thinking so much about getting it and then you finally did it, that you were excited of, and maybe one thing that you recently found somewhere walking on the street and you were like, okay, I need to get this little trinket for my house. Okay, well, the one thing I was uh, continuously thinking of getting and then I get it, it's a car. And, uh, I mean, it's a very useless kind of car. And uh, I think the fascination started maybe when I was a kid or something. And I very recently get it. And uh, about something that I randomly bought, I bought uh, a random purchase expensive random purchase I did recently, expensive for my budget, obviously, not for the you rich listener of this podcast, but is this uh, fancy Medicom toy, 100% size uh, Spongebob, that it's uh, hugely useless and uh, also, I mean, nobody actually like it, but uh, I do, and so now it's here in the corner of the of the Unimatic Studio in Milan. Actually, yeah, it's uh, it matches the whole topic in the end of this. Uh, even what they call now artist toys, no? Yeah, it's uh, always very small quantity, very design-oriented products, and uh, the kind of things that a lot of people appreciate. Even if out of curiosity sometimes. I have very mixed feeling about this topic. Uh -huh. And uh, I mean, I don't want to get <laughs> polemical in the podcast, but uh, I think there is a, you know, a lot of bullshit around this. And uh, even if I'm a customer for this thing, but uh, then, okay, I mean, we live once, so maybe it's okay also to be prone to bullshit like I am. Uh, I don't know. Right, but it's, it's always important, I think, to surround yourself with things that are beautiful to you. Yeah, regardless of to me, other people to like me only, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I don't know, about uh, arts, uh, I mean, I think there is no connection in many of modern uh, 
collectible art piece and uh, art, but uh, I mean, whatever. Uh, I like the Medicom toy, I get the Medicom toy, and uh, I don't like this thing that they try to make it feel like it's art and uh, like if it's something that is going to go through the proof of time because it's not but uh, I mean this is a little bit uh, a concept that is good for everything everything will be in the trash sooner or later so same apply to, to toys and uh, just to finish this off yep. uh, nicely I would like to ask you perhaps for someone that's never been to Italy or something to recommend, maybe a book, a movie, something you've been lately into. Italy related? Yeah, ideally. Well, as a general uh, rule of thumb, uh, I would uh, avoid watching uh, or listening or uh, even going to very stereotypical place because uh, sometimes I have the feeling when I'm talking with somebody from abroad that uh, the image of Italy is uh, very much affected by you know cliche so people see La Dolce Vita and uh, they think we are uh, you know, with the moustache on the Vespa, going to buy the newspaper and playing the the mandolino or something like that. So I would recommend to take a distance from this and uh, get here, go somewhere uh, that is not exactly on the main tourist road. And uh, I mean, Whatever city you pick, you will find beauty. And this is the, I think, the biggest luck we have being here, being Italian. You can randomly stop almost everywhere and, and you find something beautiful and unexpected and hopefully, uh, you know, true and uh, far from, from the cliche of uh, Italianness that you can find usually in the movie or in the book. So, if I need to get specific, uh, let's say you have to go to to Genova. It is not on the main tourist guide, I guess, but it's my favorite city, even if I'm from the mountain. And uh, talking about movie. You have to see Italy from another angle, so you go and see Il Secondo Tragico Fantozzi. I'm not sure you can find it in English, but still, you can try. And uh, a book, a book from, a book that talks about Italy. Mm. It's not easy. Oh, it doesn't have to be about Italy. Maybe just mm. by an Italian person. I think a lot of people don't in the reality of like common life here from an Italian author might be interesting. Yeah, I'm a little bit uh, uh, outdated 
on modern uh, Italian literature because uh, I think overall it sucks. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, but what is the what would be your suggestion, dear Roberto? Let's see if we agree or not. My suggestion, because you as a foreigner, you should have. Uh, I mean, you are a foreigner but living in Italy, right? So let's say that you first possibly read about Italy and then uh, find out what Italy was. So what was the book? Uh, I'm operating a, a swap <laughs> now I'm, and it's me driving the conversation, but what is the, the book that, uh, in your opinion, represents Italianness? Okay, no, that's, uh, that's very hard. I think uh, if I would recommend an Italian book just to be like, this is uh, good Italian literature, mm-hmm. Probably, I would say, I Promessi Sposi, just because it's such a classic. Nah, it's too much. It's very old, but for me it's like... Too much Catholic. It's like saying Dostoevsky or Tolstoy for Russia. This is just like Ah, so much... I don't agree, I don't agree. But uh, I would rather recommend something contemporary. And there's this book I read not so long ago that is called uh, Waiting for Robert Kappa which was this magnum photographer who landed in Normandy Beach mm-hmm. during the war. And so this book is written by his girlfriend at the okay. time and talks about their communication while he was away in Europe and in all these things. And it does talk a little bit about him passing and being in Italy back in the day. And it's just his experience as someone who was there as a, as a photojournalist. Mm-hmm. And a bit detached, but anyway, very present. And I think that one is a, an interesting one, even if it's not just about uh, yep. Italy. I took notes and I will read it. And uh, if I have to go super classic, then don't read Manzoni. Mm. That is way too much Catholic and moralistic. Uh, do read Leopardi instead. And, uh, and it's good. It's also short at points, so it's quicker. And uh, that's it. <laughs> well, thanks again for your time. Thank um, you very much. For everybody, I will leave uh, some links below so you can check out everything, the website, the Instagram, and uh, hopefully some pictures also. Uh, and thanks. Thanks for listening. Thank you very much. Bye, Bye Unimatic. Ciao.